Behind the Geeks. I am joined by the two legends, Scott Riley and Pete Matheson. We are sans Richard Tubb tonight, who is away on another, I think he was going to an event or a conference or something, so we're sans him tonight. However, we are going to dive in and talk tonight about the whole world of M&A in the MSP space. There's a lot of acronyms there, but mergers and acquisitions and buying and selling MSPs in the M&A space. Now, Scott, You've been in other larger MSPs before your current one, so you've probably seen some acquisition activity through then, so you've probably got a, a, a couple of ideas or insights into that. But Pete and I have both sold our own MSPs. Uh, I sold mine in 2016. Pete, you sold yours, I think it was about two years ago now. 2020, yeah. 2020. And so we, we learned a bunch of things through that process. I learned a heck of a lot of stuff through, the, through our process, and uh, the journey was really fun, exciting, rewarding, and crazy stressful at the exact same time. And and I learned a heck of a lot and have helped another couple of MSPs go through the similar journey. And so tonight we'll talk a little bit about that as well as how easy is it and is it possible to actually just go out there and buy other MSPs? There's a number of MSPs out there that their whole growth strategy is around acquisition. But that is that is a, a Easy, fun on one side of the, the the coin, but it's also very, very, very hard. Having seen and been involved in a number of acquisitions in the MSP space, uh, I've seen the other side of it as well, of the integration and the, the deal sourcing and stuff like that. So I don't know where we should start this conversation off tonight, what angle, because there is a billion different areas we can dive into in the M&A space. And I love the whole conversation and the whole topic. It is um, it is awesome. But um, Well, I guess, should we start with the, 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 the selling part? Because I think lots of well, I don't know, it's probably an equal interest, to be fair, between the acquisition and the selling side of things. But um, certainly from my aspect, I have very limited knowledge in terms of the acquisition and like financing and funding and all of those kind of areas. So perhaps if you guys have got more more understanding on that. Um, maybe on, on the selling side of things, because I always find that, so I've, I've sold mine, I've helped a few of my clients kind of sell theirs and, and things as well in the last couple of years. And everyone's experience is completely different. Like mm. from, from one to the other, it's completely different. Valuations uh, so different. Perhaps, multiples are different yeah. deal structures are different the journey's different like everything's different on everyone i think the one thing that surprised me was that you know when, when you come up to like exiting and you just you hear what everyone else tells you and they go okay that's gonna be my experience like everyone was telling me the earn out like you, you'll have a year's earn out or two years earn out whatever it is and yeah. this will be the value and you know get this much up front and this much you know all those kind of things and actually none of that applies because when you're selling it's your thing to sell. So you basically set the, ter the terms of the terms, how you yeah. want to sell. Yeah. And that wasn't really that um, obvious to me I, until we started speaking to a few different people. And we said, okay, just give us your offers. Everyone came back with completely different offers. <laughs> some people were more offers. Some people were less offers, but you have to, sorry, less offers, but you have to get out soon. More, sometimes you would um, have to stick around for six months. Sometimes it would be a year. There was the whole like actually, if you earn out and then you lose clients, then you get paid out mm. less. Yeah, you know, all all those kind of different variations that are involved when you're selling a business. Um, yeah. but you can basically define what that is. And we got to a stage where we, I knew what I wanted, and so when I was going out, they, they first sent their you know their bids in or whatever to start off with, and when I actually clarified, I said no, I, I, this this is how I want it to play out. You give me the price based on that happening. That helps a lot because it yeah. meant we have the same offer from everybody at that point. 
Exactly. There are so many other wheels and cogs you can turn other than just dollars in a deal structure. And there's all that, that earn out. There's the, um, the, the amount of time that you have to stay in the business as well as one that gets negotiated on very heavily. But there's a bunch of things. I saw Paul here wanted to talk about valuation a little bit as well. And, and valuation is depends on, like, there's so many layers to valuation in the MSP space or in any industry for that matter, because it comes down, they, they typically often happen in, um, in, in bands and what you'll see in the the not musical bands but bands of like like under one million dollars will typically have a certain type of deal structure that's the predominant one in there and then once you go for say a million dollars to the five million dollars range in turnover or ebitda depending on how you're valuing it you will then get different deal structures because you've got different types of buyers and when you get above that and you've got private equity and even up to the point where you might get some venture capital funds involved then the whole deal structures and valuations are wildly different you'll be getting valuations and on multiples on EBITDA that you wouldn't even think about getting when you're a smaller MSP in there because the, the big guys have got a whole different route that they they manage their capital allocation in there. But mm. we could dive super deep into all that stuff. But Scott, you're you're nice and quiet tonight. Um let's let's see where like you were you've been in one of those big MSPs before and I believe you you guys went through a number of acquisitions in there while you're in the big msp what did you see we in did. there that's that's helpful or any insights you saw in that's helpful for the nimble msps that are, are typically listening to this the smaller sub one two three million dollar msps yeah i've got loads and i've prepped <laughs> because we we did um 17 um acquisitions Ooh. in our msp holy wow um and so i'm i'm very used to like i was I was not personally involved in all 17, but towards the back end, I was very deeply involved in many of those from a a valuation perspective, like should we buy this MSP? Do we think we can make it profitable? Or do we think we can make more profit once we've bought it? Um, Because of course, the whole point from our perspective was we were on that buy and build journey that you were talking about, Nigel, which is we wanted to build up this MSP and sell it. Yeah. And no, no, Nigel, the, the accent does make us sound incredibly smart. I think you're wrong. <laughs> I don't know who um, said that. But... I, I don't know, but it's 100% true. That's, that's the name <laughs> no, of their, not uh, at all. YouTube name as well. Um, but no, so, so like the whole point of valuation is really important for me because you've got people like you guys who want to sell your MSP and then you've got people like me looking at it and going, well, that's cute, and I see what you think it's worth, but here's, here's what I want to pay. And what I'm thinking are three things when I want to buy your MSP, right? I'm thinking of who are the people and how quickly can I get rid of them? Because generally in, in smaller owner-operated businesses, those people have generally used it as a lifestyle business. They've funded their own football tickets at football stands. They've funded their own personal car. They've hired some family members and they put themselves (laughs) on a reasonable salary with some dividends. All of that costs going away. Cool. That's more profit for me. Cool. I'm thinking about premises because do I need to keep your offices? Do I need to keep your staff in your offices? Can I get rid of those things? And then I'm thinking about packages. I'm thinking about the software applications that you guys use, your CRM system, your email system, your backend invoicing system. I'm thinking about all those backend systems. And can I merge them with mine and therefore cut out the costs? Because what I really want is the customers and the customer margin and the revenue. That's, that's what I want, right? I don't, I don't really want the rest of it. I want to grow my business by acquiring your business. Then I'm looking at your customers. And I want to look at your customers and say, these customers are happy. So you've got good CSATs in some way. They're in long-term contracts, please. 
And I know we all love, as, as nimble MSPs, we love to do this thing where we go, look, hey, it's month to month, and you leave when you want. If you don't like us, that's cool. And that is cool. That's a really great way to treat your customers. But from a, an acquirer's perspective, I want to know that those customers are going to stay. So if you can't show me long-term contracts, show me good CSATs, right? Show me that the customers are happy. They've got no reason to leave. Their tickets are being handled really well. You guys are providing a fabulous service. Now I'm interested in talking about money. Now I'm thinking about making a purchase because I think there's costs that I can rip out. There's probably people that I can lose, typically in finance and HR, and those common areas that I don't need you to do because we already do shared those. services. Yeah. Make, yeah, shared services. Th those all need to go because I need to make this as lean as possible. And that can be hard for small business owners because they're looking at a family that they've built up over typically 10, 15, 20 years even. And they've built this whole family and relationship. And ultimately, someone's going to come along and rip apart that train set. And once you get to the point of exit and sell, you have to separate your, yourself from the business. You guys must know this, right? You've both been through that process. Through you the anxiety of it. Yeah. And, and sorry, big motorbike going past. But um, <laughs> you, you, you have to know that like this is now my time to leave. And whatever they do with the business after this, I can't help that. The people are going to go, the customers are going to leave, it is going to change because it's not my business anymore. That's the mindset you've got to, got to get yeah. into. Now, I have prepared how we would go about valuing a business. If anyone's interested, I think there might be some deep dive you know, stuff that the guys want to jump into on valuation. But I can show you with a real example, you know, kind of how we would value that because there's a lot of misunderstandings around this. People hear about five times and 10 times and they get really excited but actually five times and 10 times these these multiples do you really know what it means do you really know what it applies to and actually how much it's really worth so i've got a, i've got a, an example that i'm happy to screen share and, and talk sure. people through but I, I just I'd want to, to can, I, can i ask one um specific question of when you mentioned in terms of the contract lengths because that's one that crops up quite often yeah. so yeah when you're in from a valuation point of view if you have long contracts versus looking at the exact same MSP, but they're on like monthly rollings, but have good CSAT scores. Is yeah. that the same valuation or do you still kind of score them yeah. slightly lower for not having them tied in? No, for me, it's a really good balance. I'm, I'm happy as long as you can demonstrate across all those customers who are in month to month contracts that they're in you know, good shape. They're really happy. There's no reason why they would go somewhere else. I am looking at the technology stack though, and I'm looking at what yeah. technology stack have you got them on. So if you've got them on some shonky hosted exchange platform back from 2008 and you're charging them eight pound to user i'm going well that that is out of date that's going to go it needs to be replaced they need to be moved to office 365 and guess what that eight pound a user that you're charging now at 100 percent margin effectively because you've written off all the kit that's going to go and i'm actually going to put them on office 365 and then incur a cost and only make 10 percent. so the value that you've attached to those customers and those products isn't there that gets wiped out so I, we need to do all this maths in advance which is why the due diligence process takes a long time and, and should really have someone in it who understands the technology sometimes you just get pe firms doing due diligence with yeah. with people and they just look at the numbers that are given and yeah. they'll try and poke and prod but if they don't poke and prod into the technology and go well all this stuff's out of date needs to be replaced then they end up losing money afterwards and trust me having been through 17 of these we lost money on on a number let's say of those <laughs> we also lost money and this is really interesting if you're an owner operated agile msp that's thinking of selling 
if you're the person that owns all the relationships with all the clients and actually the people really buy from you and your guys deliver the service, but the relationship is with you, that's really hard. And, and that's really hard for us to want to buy because once you go, there is no business. Uh, yes, functionally it works. Yes, it operates. But from raw experience, I know that sounds harsh, but from raw experience, I've seen it where we've had two of those owner-operated businesses where they were just superstars and the clients loved them. And once they'd gone, there was no relationship left. Yeah. And so if you're thinking of exiting your business at some stage, as my lifelong mission is here at this company, it's to make myself completely useless. Yeah. Um, and that's from, that's from a, you know, a relationship perspective, a client management perspective, a client acquisition perspective. I need to be useless if we're ever going to exit this business. Otherwise, people look at me as that kind of player manager, superstar relationship guy, and the valuation just dips because they know yeah. it's going to be hard miles to, to keep those customers happy. Agreed. When I sold mine, like in the in the early years in my MSP, I was a thousand percent involved in every single thing. But in the last couple of years, I did work hard to get myself extracted out of things, and and it made the negotiation process so much easier in terms of my tie-in in the business. And I was literally able to sell the business and just quietly step out the back door and exit stage left with hardly anything happening. And that was that was a very powerful position to be in in the negotiating process to be able to do that because we could structure that part of the deal on our terms in there. Um, rather than being tied in for 6, 12, 18, 24, sometimes 36 months I've seen some MSP owners tied in for because they've got that that relationship with every single client in there. And holy crap, it was hard through those years to kind of shift relationships. Um, I had to like I had to make some tough decisions in there that, that upset me because I had been friends with some of these clients for 12 years in there and I was kind of stepping back and forcing them to deal with other people in there. But but it was so, 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 so beneficial to our, our journey as we went through that sales process in there. No, absolutely. I'd love to hear from the guys who are watching if they're interested more about the buying process or the selling process. Selling. Like where are you guys in your journey? If you're selling... That's cool. Again, I've got some great worked example numbers of, of how this plays out. But also, if you're thinking of buying, you might be looking at these numbers and thinking, well, heck, how am I, how am I going to raise that capital to go and buy a business? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing is there's, there's loads of different ways to do that. So oh, we, can, God, yeah. we can kind of dive into it. Yeah. If we think selling is more interesting, I can, I can run through that. Aaron's on Aaron's buying. buying. Okay. Aaron's on buying. Very good. I think most on here will probably be on buying, I suspect. Okay. Yeah. See, the thing is, I, I have a theory about this. Well, I better say I have a theory. No one's <laughs> going to really publicly say they want to sell their business. Yeah. So if you're going to ask, because well, I was at point. Datacon, this is kind of what sparked me, me before of like, I was at Datacon and they asked the whole room, like, who's thinking of buying? Who's thinking of selling? Everyone, of course, wants, I'm growing. I'm, I'm beasting this. I'm, I want to grow my business. No one's going to be like the one guy <laughs> in the room who's like, yeah, I want to sell. I, I hate my I hate my job. I want to leave. <laughs> yeah, I think I agree. Gareth in chat has got the best answer. They're selling. <laughs> yeah, no, Gareth has got the best answer. He said, "I'm not doing either, but I know another driver who is." So not me, <laughs> but asking for a friend, which asking is perfect. For a that, friend. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Yep. Um, right. So, and and yeah. Mark saying most owners don't set up their business for sale. That's a thousand percent so true. true. I, I, I was mm. the same. We it took me like one of the things that really helped me was finding the the book and the whole world built to sell by a guy called Mike Warlow. I'm sure. Um, I don't know if either of you guys have read the book, but when in probably the year leading up to when we were starting to get ready to sell, I had I came across that book. Awesome book. So it's called Built to Sell, and um, and Mike has this 
amazing podcast called the Built to Sell podcast that every single podcast episode is him breaking down the deal structure of a potential a deal where a company or a small business got sold. And so as I was going through that process or starting to, to gear up for getting ready to be sold, um, I wanted to learn as much as I possibly could. So I back-to-back listened to probably 40 episodes or 35 episodes of that podcast, and that gave me an MBA in M&A. Um, and it's another couple of acronyms for you, but it, it really gave me the confidence then to be able to sit at a table, at a negotiating table, and know how, how common deal structures are and what the terms and the lingo and everything were because I had never done a deal like that in my life when I sold. But then this, literally listening to that, that pod, 40 podcast episodes and, and reading that book, really armed me to the teeth with being confident going through that thing. So even if you're on the buying or the selling side, I highly encourage you to go and grab that book, Built to Sell, and, and go and binge listen to a bunch of Mike's episodes. I'm guessing there's a bunch more now. This was back in 2014, 2015 that I, I listened to that. Uh, but I bet you there's a, a bunch more awesome ones out there now that just give you the the confidence to know how to approach these things. And as you mentioned, Scott, there is so many ways to buy an MSP that don't require you to put your cash in. There. There's there's earnouts, there's raising capital, there's all sorts of stuff. There's vendor finance, uh, which is a, a effectively an earnout in there, and the hap is way more common than what you think. And and that podcast and that whole thing opens your mind to so many different types of deal structures that you can have out there. And so, if you're an MSP and you don't have cash in your bank at the moment to the point where you think you could fund a deal, don't be put off. That doesn't mean that you can't go and do a deal. There is so many creative ways to go and put a deal together once you you kind of open your eyes to the world of all the different structures that are out there. Something yeah, I'll um, give you a real example of... Oh, sorry. Go on, Pete. No, crack on. Okay, I was going to say, I've got a real example of someone who approached us with, with a purchase offer for us. Um, and they, they don't have any, have any cash themselves. They are a couple of people who've decided, look, we've done this before. We can go and do this again. We can buy up some MSPs. We can merge them together and we can sell them. Wrap up. And they've approached a finance. Yeah, but literally just buy and build and sell. They've approached a, um, a firm that has basically put aside a 10 million pound pot. Yeah. And they've done that by presenting a strong business case that says, look, this this is what we've done previously. This is what we can do with one business. Here's how we add the second one. Here's the cost we cut out. And they've taken a 10 million pound pot and they've bought one. They've then gone to uh, MSP number two and said, look, this is the plan. This is what we're doing. This is where we're going. Our plan is to sell the entire business for 10 times EBIT, for example. So we'd like to buy you, but we'd like to buy you for no cash. Okay, so we want to buy you, we want to put you in the mix, and we want to give you a percentage of the overall sale value. So when we sell the whole thing, you will get five times your business. Yeah. And then they go to the next one. So right now they've got 10 million pounds in the pot. They've spent a little bit buying company number one. They've now spent nothing buying company number two. <laughs> And company number two, they'll only charge for that. They'll only pay for that when they sell the overall conglomeration. They've then done that to company number three. And I think we were number company four, company number four in that list. So at right. that stage, they've spent hardly any of the 10 million. They've acquired three businesses along the way and spent no cash. Those I'll businesses cash carry down. on running independently. Yeah. And, and they're in a situation where when we sell the joint group, you will get, we, we commit now, you'll get five times your EBIT, five times your EBIT, whatever, whatever your business is worth. And so that's been a really interesting way for them to go ahead and buy up 
a group of MSPs and, and not spend any cash. And then what they're doing is saying, right, we have those shared services, Nigel, that you mentioned. We have HR, we have finance, yeah, yeah. we have whatever. So you will ditch your products and services and people that do those and take the cost savings and you will pay us like a management fee into the main organization. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, a management fee that goes on monthly. So the main business is doing great. They, they haven't spent any of their cash pot really. They've got now an income stream for service revenue from the other companies, and those companies are independently making cash and have less costs because they have less overheads. And ultimately, the goal is in three to five years, sell the whole lot for 10 times EBIT, and then pay out of that big chunk of pot portions to those businesses. And they've shown that to the, the investors at the beginning with their 10 million pound and gone, we're going to take your 10 million pounds and turn it into, I don't know, a hundred million pounds because this is Doesn't the plan. Because they're not merging the companies at that point, are they? They're still running independently as this, as themselves. They are. So they does are. that not but they're, very they're much strategy... on that final, you know, whoever they sell to has now got these 10 companies and they've now got to amalgamate into one somehow or they keep running them as independents? Yeah, so I think it's, it, it's an interesting approach from those guys. They've specifically looked at... These guys do telephony. These guys do WANs. These guys do cybersecurity. And so those are independent things. So you can now, you know, stream yeah. customers into each other. And so there does become a greater dependency on everything kind of working together. But you're right. It's still a very separate set of organizations. Yeah. And I can honestly tell you, when, when I was at the previous business where we did 17 of these, they were not well integrated. It might have been under one brand, but it was not well integrated. Underneath, it was a little wobbly house of cards. But when you sold it out to the next bunch of investors, boy, you could tell a really glossy story about all the divisions, business divisions. (laughs) Diversification. Diversification. And that's that's the thing. The the bigger you get the more private equity gets interested in you, but they're not interested in the underlying business. They're interested in the EBIT because they've got to satisfy their, their investors in their business. Yeah. And, and that's all they're looking at in these things. They're, not, they're getting to the point where they don't care about integrations or merging or whatever. They're just going, oh, well, we're going to throw X number of dollars down here and get this amount of EBIT that we can throw back to our bottom line to our investors as cash flow to them. And, um, and it means that to me, it's, it's a, I don't like it. The reason being is that it's typically those, when they get to that size, the customer is not looked after. Like the customer becomes the least cared part of in the whole deal. And that's why I love the nimble MSP space so often is because it's it sits in that space before businesses get too big where they just tend to care, like the private equity gets involved and they tend to care more about the money. And again, I'm painting with a pretty broad brush there, but they tend to care more about the money than they care about the clients. And to me, I care about the clients and the staff more than anything else in that in our business. And I know, Scott, you mentioned that when you were buying them up, it's like, uh, what can we do with the staff and what staff can we get rid of? But me as a buyer, as a seller, I was like, sure, the money was important to me, but there was also other important points in our deal structure. And one was obviously my tie-in and the earnout amount and percentage. But one of the other big things was my team. And I had built a team over a number of years and I loved my team. And we're still good friends with all of the team to this day. But we built specific things inside that contract that meant that that team got preserved through the like, 100% of the team, not only got preserved, but got sign-on bonuses within the first month of joining and 12 months later, they, they had to keep those team members on unless there was performance-based issues or whatever, but then they gave them another performance, bo- sorry, another bonus as part of the, the sale 12 months later. And they were things that we could have just taken that money ourselves as the, the sellers and, and added that into the deal and we could have got the dollars. But for me, it, when, for a lot of MSPs out there, I'm sure you guys are the same, 
you care about your team so damn much in there because they've helped you get to where you've got and and you do you will do a lot in there to look after them again PE space, it happens much less and there's worried about much less, but we're talking about the nimble space, that kind of under $5 million yep. mark. Um, and and I think that's it's very important to, to make allowances for team in there and look after them and know that if you are a buyer, that typically a seller will want to make sure that their team is really getting looked after in there in some way, shape or form. That's a really interesting way of looking at it because that's, um, again, you know, everyone's buying and selling experience is different and that never crossed my mind. I mean, I knew there was the whole kind of share purchase options and giving them to your yeah. your staff yeah. and having we never got have to some that. equity, uh, but not to a stage where you could, you know, exactly like you said, like as part of the deal is they get a payout in six or 12 months or, mm. you know, a bonus for, for selling the company, those kind of things. And also it relates to um, whether it was yourself or, or Scott mentioned slightly earlier, about that once you've sold the business, you have to get used to the fact that it is not yours. It is theirs yep. to do whatever they want to do with it. They can change things. And um, and they will. It, it, and, they, and they will. And actually, yep. it hit home it was this week or last week because the um, the guys that bought my business, they were on a, a podcast I watched. It was a, a Paul Green's podcast, actually. Oh, yeah. And discovered. Awesome. So my, my interpretation with all our discussion was, you know, as you do... They're going to buy the business. They're going to look after all your staff and everything like it's going to carry on as it is. Like all, you know, all the all the kind of promises that you hope and wish for your staff. And the following month, they'd always spoken to a, like a, another company about selling their own business to that company, oh, right. and they sold um, my business along with their business like six we, months later quick. after buying oh, my well. business. Oh yeah, yeah. There's, you know, you you can you, just, you can promise the world. Correct. You just never know change. what's going to be around the corner. That's it, it. Things you have to just let go. And and I was very much, you know, I was let go of things. Now, yeah. actually, a lot of things now make sense to me about how things happened um, yeah, yeah. and why things happened the way they did. But um, just, just knowing that is, you know, you always wish the best for all your staff. Yeah. But once you've sold it, you literally have no control. You do. Um, unless, yeah. and th- th- that's the surprise to me, unless you do have those tie-ins where actually, you know, they have to give a bonus after six or 12 months yes. or, you know, if they stick around. And yeah, it, yeah. That, that's really interesting to me. And we, uh, yeah, we did that for a couple of reasons. Number one, I wanted my team to be looked after, but we, we could have obviously paid our team a little bonus out of the money that we got and just had that all structured mm-hmm. in the deal. So it was money that we got. But I really wanted the dynamic to be coming from the company that bought them so that the team could feel valued by the, the incoming buyer as well in there. And so we, we sat down, I talked through that thing and I said, look, I really want you guys to look after our team and I'm willing to, to lose a little bit of money in here so that you guys have more in the deal so that you can go and give them that thing to give you guys the best chance of keeping the team because you obviously need to keep them as well. Ours was a strategic buy because they really wanted access to our team. And as, as well, it, it allows us to know that our team is getting a little bonus on the way through uh, in here. And it, and it was thousands for every team member in there that they got out of this deal. And, and that was, I just, I structured it that way just because I really wanted them to, to kind of be felt like they were looked after by the people that were coming in as well. And I wanted that, that relationship to be set solid from the day dot, because I know that I wasn't going to be like, as much as I, I thought that I would be around a fair bit to start off with, I wasn't. And I needed them to, to know that they were getting looked after after that thing. It was kind of, when, it, when we announced in our office, it was about, like years um, and all sorts of stuff. It was horrible. Time. So many people I've heard when they sold their business and, you know, they're, they're, they're stuck around for six months or, you know, around for 12 months. And then day one, they're let go. And they're like, yes. no, we don't need you anymore. Go on. Yeah. See you later. <laughs> so many times I hear yeah. that. They're, they're expecting to be around, like, in the office every single day. And literally on day one, they're like, no, we don't really need you anymore. Yeah. Go home yeah. and we'll, we'll call you if we need you. Most of us owners are a hindrance anyway. And it's probably best to get us out of the way and, and do your integration. Well, that, that, that's interesting as well, because when you guys were talking about earlier about, you know, Scott, you're working yourself out of the business and making yourself kind of redundant, so to speak. I've, I've had it myself and a few people I've worked with as well, where when you're selling your business, 
you are forced to work yourself out of the business because you need to make sure that by the time that day comes, that there is no reliance on you, like client ties or whatever it might be. So just by going through the sale process, by the time you get to those last few weeks, there's that feeling that that I had and a few others have had where they're like, hang on a minute, I, I'm not really in this business anymore and yeah. I can still make the money and you know all that kind of stuff. It's running itself. Maybe I shouldn't sell because now we've kind of <laughs> done the thing that I wanted anyway. Um, so that that's quite a common thing that you know, certainly happened to me. Should have done that sooner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. The whole um, but the whole emotional journey you go through is is madness as you go through, especially if you have your MSP for a long period of time and you've got a team that you've had for ages and clients that you've got for ages. That emotional part of it is can be heavy, like really heavy. And as I said, we had tears and. And all sorts of stuff in our office for for a while in there, and um and it was tough to deal with, no doubt. Yeah, that first day I had uh, it was basically back to back one to one meetings with all, yeah. all the staff, and there was there was tears and uh, yeah. lots of emotion, and it was yeah, oh, it was not fun. And that was the, the most horrible part of the whole experience was just the the team managing the team in there. Mm. Sorry, Scott, what were you going to say before? I was going to say, let's talk numbers. You guys are all touchy feely. I'm, I'm, I'm the buying <laughs> person here. You're the, right? throw me I've some money. So many of these. I'm like, I, I want new owners out of the way because, it, yes, I'm sure it was a lovely business, but I've got to, I've now got to make money out of this because I've got investors and they've got a pot of cash and I've got to turn this around, right? So you, you, you are welcome if you want your staff to have some lovely bonus and stay on bonus, but it's coming out of your money. It's yep. not coming out of my money, and so I'll, I'll reduce the stuff that we're paying you so that you can pay the staff. Cool. I'm happy with that. Um, I also love where we've talked about this previously, like people run systems like Vested, where they're giving their guys yeah. share options yeah. who've stayed in the business for a period of time. So that actually, yeah, well, that's a great way to respect that they've grown this business together with you. But ultimately, if you're thinking of leaving, that's a really nice way for them to get something, get a piece of that action yeah, at the end. It. And... They probably still have a job, right? They still, they still are, you know, really useful in that business. But also, they got a little bit of a bump when that event happens, which is really nice. But uh, Mark Salvin, you asked an interesting question, which is, which company did that company raise the ten million pounds from? That is a company called Boost and Co. I've seen them on uh, LinkedIn, so you can go ahead and check them out. There's a common business article. Uh, they, yes, I think that's the best way they describe themselves. But yeah. But essentially, they'll they'll put together a chest. You put your business case together of what you think you're going to do and how you think yeah. you're going to do it. There are organizations like the Business Growth Fund here in the UK, the BGF. It's a, a fund that's backed by the four largest banks in the UK. Don't ask me which four. I just know it's four banks. Um, I know that they had invested £10 million in our business previously. Right. Um, and obviously, they wanted a kind of a return within three to four years. It ended up being more like seven to eight years. Um, but they were very supportive, and it was really useful. So, you know, there's there's lots of ways that you can get this funding in without yeah. having to have cash in the bank. Um, what I would love to do... Um, do to share actually, a screen and show, show me right. the money? Where would you look? Where would you look? So I've been looking, interestingly, again, here in the UK, there's a company that, because again, because we've been through a lot of these with different brokers, there's essentially estate agents for businesses. Um, So, you know, you'll get a nice picture and here's a business in this lovely leafy suburb and they do this. Um, But I know Knightsbridge uh, Business Sales and Solutions uh, is an interesting one that play in our space. I've seen them They've selling a, few a couple MSPs, of I've MSPs, you know, and, and they'll say, you know, these guys have been running for 26 years, owners looking to retire, revenues are at 600, you know, open to offers. Yeah. So I think thing is, that's the, probably um, an interesting time to do. With, with brokers, who, who does the broker work for? Because surely their job they there is to get most of the business the so that they get paid more. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, they get paid by the. Well, seller. they get a percentage of the deal, right? So that it's it's in their interest to get the most amount of money out of the deal. But would you go to a broker as a buyer to you say normally that go as a um, yeah, so we, we went as a seller. So we went and spoke to a couple of brokerage places and said, hey, we're, we've had a couple of offers on the or a bit of interest in the business. We're looking at, at selling it. Would you guys take it on? And if so, do you want to walk us through your thing? And they all walked us through their process and gave us ideas of valuation and their, their selling method and everything. And some of the questions that I asked them, it's like, so who are you going to put this deal out to? Like, tell me a little bit about your database of who you're going to put it out to. And they were all selling like Subway franchises and McDonald's franchises and all of these types of things that would sell to mum and dad pops. And so all the people on their list were mum and dad pops, not other IT companies because most IT sales sell to trade. They sell to the industry. Yeah. And um, and so we went, oh, well, like they're going to take 6 7%. They've given us this idea of valuation in here. Um, could we do the same ourselves and try and get more? And so I ended up taking on the, the process myself of selling our business and we said no to the brokers. And I went out and built a list of – Australia's top 300 MSPs. I went through all the like the um, awards things, like the CRN and ARN awards, and I just built up this huge list. And I helped one of my assistants um, build up this huge list. And then we did an outbound campaign to all 300 and something of them um, over a month or two period. We started off with an anonymized pitch deck uh, sent from a completely different email address, not associated with us, and just said, "Hey, we've got an MSP that's um, potentially interested in in expressions of interest." Here's an anonymized pitch deck with some of the details. Let us know if you're interested in it. And we got something like, I can't remember the numbers now, it's getting a bit hazy, but it's something like 90 replies coming back saying, yeah, heck, I'm, I'm interested in that. Two of them said, is that Nigel Moore's MSP? <laughs> and I went, oh, crap, <laughs> we didn't hide it very well. Yeah. No, um, no, it isn't. No, no, no. <laughs> but we, we whittled it down to about 30 that signed NDAs and got into a due diligence phase with this. And because we had that many in the process, we, we turned it into a bidding war. And, um, and that... To me, we got we got something like thirty percent more than what the brokers were um, suggesting that we'd get by trying to sell to their lists out there. And we were dealing with some of Sydney's hottest hottest brokers out there. But it took me some time to go and through that process. It was like a six month journey to go through that process. And I was lucky that I wasn't as required in the business at that point in time. Um, I was still working on another one of my businesses, but um, but it really helped us control. the narrative a whole lot more and um, and extract more value because we just focused really on on the trade and on other MSPs as buyers in there and gave ourselves so many options. That optionality in that process was so powerful being able to have, mm. like we had seven or eight bidders at the end in the bidding war. Um, and then that's when we got to, we got to this price point where we went, oh, that's like 20, 30% above what the brokers said they would have got us. And you know what brokers are like, they're always over exaggerating mm. what they're going to get you in the first place. And then we went, well, let, now's the time to start uh, negotiating on all those extra deal structures like what percentage is the earnout versus the cash up front we got that to a, an incredible level in there um, as well as how long are we required as owners to stick around and, and also putting in those other things so that process if anyone's going through the sale side of the process don't just jump in with a broker or whatever and just just leave the whole lot up to them perhaps go in and, and dive in and grab the the bull with the horns and, and go through a, a full-on outbound process just like you would try to do if you were trying to attract some clients into the business go and try and look at these people as clients like the buyers as clients with your with that process you went through with like the pitch deck did you get any outside help to put the pitch deck together or did you no, just do it internally no, no. No, i just did it internally myself yeah so i but mm -hmm. I, that was after i'd back to back listened to the whole of um that like i'd given myself a little mini m a mba in the, oh, the yeah. six to 12 months leading up to that. So I didn't go in completely blind. I'd looked at lots of other decks and um, kind of reverse engineered a bunch of things in all these other mm -hmm. decks in there. So it was, 
it wasn't just completely blind, but I didn't have any any M and A help that, through the process. At the yeah. very end, we got our lawyer to help out a little bit with the the negotiations in there, but that was it. So we had of- a um, there was like an outsourced FD because we we you know we do all the financing stuff internally. We had an accountant and that that stuff, yeah. but our accountants were also one of our clients, so it was very difficult to talk to them <laughs> when uh, that was a situation. But so, so we we outsourced a FD position. He did very very similar things to you. He basically took our data built a pitch deck, you know, he took all, from what Scott was saying, took out all the owner's costs, built yep. this kind of adjusted EBITDA, which is what the cost should be based yep. on. Um, we gave him a list of, I think it was like 10 or 15, you know, MSPs to, to approach and, and have a chat with. Right. The first, I think the first three or five came back with uh, like, yes, yes, straight away, like we want to know <laughs> more, like yep. NDAs, whatever it is. And we, we just stopped it there because, yeah, my God, going through, did you say 30? Oh, man, <laughs> it was intense at one time in there. There was a month of like... Five to ten questions a day hitting me through through the post. Yeah, no, we, we just we, we we left it with him. He kind of dealt with the questions for us, thankfully. But yeah. even at, even at like five to ten, yeah, like, trying to deal with those coming back and um, yeah. like that pre diligence phase. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, sign sign the NDAs. And my my, my experience with NDAs is they're basically worthless. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, we, <laughs> yeah. We, we've had a few things. You know, obviously the solicitors will sell you the, the NDA and charge you to write it. And yeah. then when we um. We did have an issue, and some some information got out. Uh, yeah. One of the clients we were talking, one of, one of the companies we were talking to, and, and um, some not very nice things were happening. And the solicitor basically turned and said, "Well, you got to prove, you know, prove it was that's yeah. where it came from." It's like, yeah, yeah. You just charged me like two grand for an NDA. <laughs> it's a right NDA. Thing. You can't do anything with it. It is a very shady process. I came to know. We had a number of people jump on and and dig to find out who we were through that pre diligence phase before we'd we'd let them know who we were, and um and their whole thing was. Like they, they actually threatened that they were going to go and contact all of the people on our testimonials list and tell them that we're selling if we didn't give them a good deal on there. And we had we had a bunch of craziness pop up in there, which is just you just go, man. And these guys are, are some of Sydney's most well-known MSPs, like the ones doing 20, 30, 40, 50 million. And they were out there yeah. with these dodgy tactics to try and get in on the deal. It was it was crazy. That I'm sure you never did any of that in your realm, Scott, when you were out there doing these deals. No, oh. <laughs> absolutely. No. There's an Whatever's interesting that, question from uh, Jason in the questions down there. Of uh, here, so many MSP owners shy away from this topic as they have heard horror stories. Yeah, I read something that said a good deal should feel uncomfortable for both sides. Would you guys agree? I actually wouldn't agree. What do you guys think? Would you agree or disagree with I don't that? Know. I think the whole process of an M and A is uncomfortable anyway. Or it is what well, was to me as I went through mm. it in the first stage. But but I don't know. Like I, I think you can get to like we got to a, a point where both of us were very happy at the end of the deal. Um, mm. We weren't uncomfortable with the deal, and they weren't uncomfortable with the deal. And so I think that mm. for us that was a good point. And so I don't know. I think it's a a kind of probably happens in some doesn't happen in others the way i see it yeah i think it, it depends i guess because you've got the, you've got the two disconnects there you've got the the comfortable with the price and you've got yeah. comfortable with i guess the process like you were saying process yeah, we're not, yeah. I'm not the rest of the um and definitely like with the price i felt I mean, so when we went through the process we were we came up with the price that we thought um you know we i think i went, went through this before we added up like paying our mortgage off having a few years yeah. out with the kids you know some savings all that kind of stuff so we had our number that's how we built our number um and then we went through the valuation. We were already above that number, right? Yeah, um, and the offers we had were already above that number. So for us, that was us happy. You know, we had that box ticked. For for us, it was just the rest of the process, which was: is it the right fit? Is it the right company? Are they going to look after the staff, the clients, all of those kind of things as well? Um, so I think there's there's definitely that um, being comfortable with the price because then you both feel like you're getting a good deal in terms of the price, and obviously the buyer knows that they can make the money back in how many years. 
It's a question for you, Scott, in a minute, actually, about that, um, about how quickly you can get make your money back. And then just going through the process is a whole separate thing of, um, you know, we will, you know, certainly me and Nigel have been through that, of worrying about, like, what happens if clients leave? What happens if yeah. staff leave in the middle? There's all the things of what happens if the staff need a pay rise and you've, you know, already discussed mm-hmm. and handed over the information on how much you're paying your staff. Like, what do you do and, then? Like, that happened to us in the middle of it. <laughs> We, we had all those signs saying, yeah. like, have you agreed pay rises? They need to yeah. know that. So they've already yes. agreed them in yeah. all those things that go on. Um, but, yes, yeah, so a question to Scott there. I've completely forgotten what the question was. Hopefully you remembered what the question <laughs> How quickly did you get your money how back? Quick. Yes. So how quickly and would the, you expect to get money back quick. on that position? So typically three years. Yeah, three years is typical. Because that's, because, uh, that's a three, three times multiple. That's average across most of the small businesses out there. Well, we're, we're going to pay more than three times typically, but we're then going to go and wrench out costs. And so when we talk about this idea of being comfortable with the deal, having been on the buyer side, yeah, we'll get comfortable with the price, but then we really find it difficult to get comfortable with the knowledge that we are definitely going to be able to cut out all of the costs that we expect to cut out because the due diligence process is, is short, yeah, and the access to information is tied up, and it's a lot of what you guys as sellers want to show us. Sometimes we get to speak to the staff, but again, the staff are either very incentivized to tell us a good story, or they're, sh- they're kept away from us because those aren't the people that we should be talking to. So it's difficult to get a real story until the deal is done. And once the deal's done, then all the can of worms, that's where you'll find you get those earnout clauses, because yeah. we we'll get a comfort factor. We'll decide how comfortable are we with this and how much an earnout clause on these guys. So if the deal's worth 13 million pounds, which is one I remember, we put 10 million up front and 3 million on an earnout. The 3 million was everything you've told us about this business is true, about the customers is true, right? Everything about the products and the services. Yeah. So in 12 months, if that's all true and none of this falls apart, you get your extra 3 million pounds. Now, we've still risked 10 million. We've spent the 10, they've had the cash, they disappear off into the sunset, but there's another Brucey bonus of 3 million. Now, it could be, Pete, like in your mind, your your number was 5 million. They just got 10. They don't give a rip <laughs> about getting the other three because 10 is more than they could possibly think about spending in their lifetime. But still, an extra 3 million, you know, you'd notice it. But it's it's always uncomfortable. The purchase is always uncomfortable because... We, I say we get happy with the number. Now the real work begins. Yeah. Now the work oh, yeah. of actually consolidating that business begins. Oh, yeah. And we will see the benefits in about three years. Yeah. Typically. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, should we do, because we've got like 18 the, minutes left. Should I do yeah. numbers to, to kind of help? Do numbers or deal sourcing? I think that were two of the, two of the questions. So I'm happy to so bring I'm, up some numbers. Deal sourcing, a, I, can, um, I can cover UK-wise, but I see we've got a question about deal sourcing in the US, um, and I don't know. I don't have any so, US experience. So deal sourcing all around the world, from my perspective, the best way to build lead flow is in, yourself at industry events. Go out to industry events, masterminds, peer groups, conferences, events, all of those sorts of things, and just build your database of potential acquirers and and, and buyers yourself out there because – you can you can look for deals on all of those those sites that we talked about. Like in Australia, we've got Seek Commercial, and in the US, you've got Biz Buy Sell, and all of those sites list MSPs from time to time, but not very often. And they're typically in hot commodity when they come online because everybody that's like anybody that's buying MSPs has got safe searches set up for all those sites. So all like I reckon I've seen tons of MSP M and A deals, and I reckon ninety percent of them have come from. Uh, relationships that the buyers and sellers have made at industry events. 
I think 90% have happened there. And to me, that's the most most highest ROI place you're going to get deal flow is just by going to events and meeting as many people as you possibly can, setting up a CRM that's separate to your, your client prospect CRM in your business or you're tagging people differently, but just of potential buyers and acquirers in there so that when the time comes or if the time comes or sorry, when the time comes, you've got a, you've got a database there of people you can talk to and, and keep nurturing and building that database just like you would a, a database of potential prospects in your MSP. I, I think also um, just publicly advertise that you're looking for, for buying or selling, you know, if, if you can, it's obviously yeah. selling is a bit difficult. That's why there's anonymous forum on the uh, anonymous. Tech Tribe. Thank you there is an anonymous forum on the tech tribe for it. <laughs> Literally how I sell my business through an anonymous online yeah. forum. <laughs> but just, just to advertise if people know that you're yeah. looking to buy and, you know, give as much detail as you can of like revenues, like recurring revenues, whatever it is you're looking yeah. for. Um, just let people know because you never know who's looking or reading or watching, whatever it yeah. might be. But, but deal sourcing is that networking, like just building your network. I know a couple of MSP, M&A people out here, dedicated out here in Australia, that their whole job, like they all they do is they just attend industry events and build relationships with every single person they possibly can at those events, just looking at them all as potential acquirers, sorry, potential people that are they're going to acquire mm-hmm. out there. And that's it. And that, that's where they get, as I said, 90 probably plus percent of their deals come from those relationships forged at those events and conferences and masterminds and peer groups out there. Scott. Let's throw some dollars up. Show, all show right. us all the money. What are we? Show what money. numbers are we looking at? Well, so so this is the question because people always hear about these five Sorry. times and ten times multiples, yep. and you're like, oh my god, that sounds amazing. So <laughs> my business is like half a million turnover, and I can get five <laughs> times half a million. That's two and a half million, and they're they're ordering like the Lambos and the yachts and. Like the house in the south of France. And, oh my, on. two and a half million. Can you imagine spending two and a half million? And then they go to like, uh, you know, an external FD like Pete mentioned, and there's a bit of a wop wop. It's not worth two and a half million. Oh, you, Where did you not get that? revenue. <laughs> yeah, it's not revenue. So let's talk about EBITDA, earnings mm. before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. AKA SDE. I like to use the term SDE in the small business space because it's a little bit easy to comprehend. Seller's discretionary earnings. I like to, it, it makes a little bit more sense and it's very similar. Um, but you hear it a lot uh, in the oh, sub. Lee is saying adjusted EBITDA. So Lee, we'll, yeah, we'll get EBITDA. to adjusted, but we'll adjust when we're doing a deal. Mm-hmm. You, you as an MSP probably just need to understand at a basic principle your EBIT. But let's let's just uh, I can share. I've got a, a spreadsheet. Doesn't everyone love a spreadsheet? Uh, love a good Excel. Yeah, we, we, we did. Uh, we had an EBITDA, and we I did my own adjusted because I can assume which costs are going to go when I go, yes. or you know, cars. Yeah, yeah, and yeah exactly. Like other yeah. personal things. Yeah. yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, you'll tend to adjust when you're selling. Oh, how do we? Pretty much. <clears throat> I, I've zoomed this in massively on purpose. Because <laughs> how I do we get? Reveal. How do we get Scott and and his Excel on the screen at the same time? Oh, I don't That's think you like, can. I don't think you can. It's like oh, I, I'm only on one screen. So I can only have you or the Excel. So Excel. Oh, really? oh, okay. Well, we'll leave your Excel right, up there. Sure you on Scott's beautiful face while we're we're watching this. <laughs> For yeah, people just, that are listening, if we can just make sure that they can uh, understand what's going on as well. <laughs> Unless you can two up, can you do two up or something like that? That's what I was trying to do, but the buttons don't seem to make it happen um, in there. Uh, either that or I'm clicking on the wrong one. <laughs> Gareth says we need uh, an A10 on, Pro. On. We're all in different rooms, though. I don't know, I don't know how that would help. Um, <laughs> no. Oh, there you go. Oh, Yay. Hey. Sorted it out. All right. So numbers up there. There you go. Right. right. So here's a, 
I don't know, a fabricated example of a business that's turning over £540,000 this year. I don't know where I could have got these numbers from. Imagine that they're all made up. Okay, so this business has done £8,000 in sales and some licenses and some managed services and some consultancy work. It's turning over £540,000 and we want to figure out its EBITDA. Awesome. So the first thing we're going to do is take all of our sales. Oh, come on, Lee. It's my face. Um, it's all of our sales. <laughs> and then what we're going to do is we're the cost of sale of those items, right? So these are all the costs that come out of that. So now we're talking about a gross profit. Okay, cool. Gross profit. So do we get five times gross profit? No. <laughs> no, you do not get five times you your gross get profit. One. Okay. What you then have to do is go and take away all of your costs to run the business. So all of your costs, expenses, advertising, directors, remuneration, imagine, national insurance, insurances. What did you spend $1,000 on entertainment on, Scott? (laughs) Yeah, it was, uh, anyway. So now I've got total expenses and now I've got an earnings number. So out of my 540,000 pound turnover, I've got an earning an earning before tax of £72,000. Okay, great. Can I just multiply that by five and that's my enterprise value? No, no, you cannot because it's not that simple. Okay, you'll notice right up here at the top, and you might not have done this, but maybe, you know, this particular person has thought about that they're going to eventually exit this business. And so they've broken down all their revenue streams into different items, okay? And so inside their accounting system, they've been smart and gone, hey, I'm going to break down one-off licenses, recurring, one-off bits of consultancy versus managed service recurring, and any other things that I've broken them down into different line items. Why? Because when you get into talking about a deal, some of these things are worth more than others in terms of multiples. Okay, so if I give you some examples here, now you can fight me if you like on the specific multiples, I don't mind, but what we're going to say is hardware sales, okay, we're going to take your sell, we're going to take your cost, and we're going to take your margin, and here's your margin, you made £840 out of that eight grand of sales, the multiplier on that is times one because it's hardware and nobody cares, okay? It's not sticky, it's not particularly attractive. Maybe your different, your business is a different unicorn and it only sells hardware, so okay. But in, in an MSP world, one. One-off license revenue, times one. Licenses recurring, all right, maybe times two, maybe with that new NCE, one-year lock-in for all these licenses on Microsoft, maybe times two. I'll be generous, because again, we're not making a huge amount of money on this, but maybe it's times two. Ah, now. Managed services recurring, okay? This is the golden boy. This is where the money really happens because this is where the multiples come in. Now, I've been horrendously generous and called this a 10 times multiple, and that is generous. It's super generous. In fact, you're more likely to see something that's like times four or times yeah. five the here. The biggest I've seen is times services. six, and that was on a $10 million deal. Yeah, yeah. And, and you would have to have like some good cybersecurity services in here to get anywhere above times five, okay? So times five is more realistic. Um, Then your consultancy. Now, again, this should be times one because it's one-off professional services. But if you can evidence to me that those customers are having repeat pieces of consultancy from you over the last 18 months to two years, then I'll consider it maybe times two because maybe there is some recurring pattern to this. 
Okay, so now I've got a total earnings with my super generous managed service recurring fee here of times 10. Now I've got my total earnings of 1 million or 1.1 million. I've got my total expenses going out and I've got an enterprise value of 914,000 pounds. So let's see, let's make this more like times five, be really realistic. So my turnover is 540,000 pounds and I'm excited about all this times five noise that I've heard, but my sell price is actually 570,000 pounds. So when people think about, you know, this is my revenue and this is what I'm going to sell for, you need to be really realistic. You're not, you're not likely to get much more than one times revenue. Okay. But the real way you have to do it is to dig into all this maths and pull out your individual line items. And like I say, some items will be more valuable than others. If you've got a specific cybersecurity line item here that is a recurring cybersecurity service, you can probably push for something like times eight to times 10 of that specific line item. But if you're not breaking this out today in your MSP and you don't know what your individual line items are, you're going to find it very difficult to come to any kind of valuation. And that's the same... If you're, if you're buying or you're selling, if you go to buy a business and they can't evidence these things separately, then you've got no way of, of really valuing them. Just taking the revenue and just taking the gross profit is not good enough. It has to be broken down like this. And Nigel, you know, I applaud you because you did your own sales process and you would have figured all this stuff out and put this together in the documents. Mm. That's what those brokers do is, is, is help extract all this information. It's not difficult, but you have to, you have to, you know, have this ready. So can I just dive in just quickly there? I was, and this is a, a, something that's going to be helpful, hopefully for a lot of people out there. I was very, very, very lucky in the very early years of starting my MSP that I stumbled across a guy called Paul Dipple and his service leadership um, stuff. And Paul Dipple is an American MSP consultant and he typically consults in M&A stuff. And I stumbled across him when I was doing like 120 grand in my MSP, like tiny. And he has this thing called the normalized service provider chart of accounts where he breaks the chart of accounts down exactly like you've got there, Scott, where you're breaking them down into basically all the different areas where they're going to be valued upon separately. And so from the day I started my MSP, I set up my chart of accounts based on the normalized chart of accounts that Paul Dipple's got. And so if, if you're out there and you've got a, like, like Scott's saying now, kind of a consolidated chart of accounts where all your, all your labor revenues bundled in one thing and it's not split off versus, of projects versus managed services recurring and stuff like that, then go and hunt down Paul Dipple's um, normalized service provider chart of accounts or we've got a, a cut down version of it inside the tribe for, for Nimble MSPs uh, that can help you do this. And it doesn't take a lot of time up front to do it, but if you do it, it makes it so much easier when you get to the point of selling your business because everything is already broken down for you. You don't need a financial director to do anything. I literally spent maybe an hour or two in Excel when we were doing all the wizardry at the end to come up with things because I'd done all of that work years and years and years and years and years earlier. And I was so darn lucky that I came across Paul in those those early years and just understood the reasoning behind having a really clean chart of accounts in there. So highly recommended. Thank you for making the point, Scott. No, you're, you're absolutely right. That, um, cool. I'm going to ask a question that no one else is going to ask in the chat, but everyone else is pretty thinking. How do they get a copy of your spreadsheet, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm more than happy to share a copy of this spreadsheet. So if anyone wants to just message me, I'll, I'll share. Um, this is a, a basic breakdown of a random service provider's <laughs> chart. Um, but I'll, I'll happily share. Um, it, it, honestly, a lot of this data comes from they're asking for a friend, their finance package, because they've structured it in zero. So yeah. that it is all broken down to yeah. line items. But I think having this 
in <laughs> Gareth says, just rewind the video. You can type it in yourself. Make your own spreadsheet. <laughs> um, I love that. I, I, I'm, I'm happy to share though. Um, but uh, yeah, I think this this all helps. Lee makes this point really well, which is that you have to <coughs> you have to break the numbers down this way. You have to have a realistic expectation of what those values are for when you're selling the business, because otherwise you get swept up into some of the great emotion about these big numbers that you hear about, um, yeah. as well as you know the, the whole thing that we talked about about separating you from this family that you've built and. If, if you kind of get swept along by a big number and go on the heartache journey of thinking, right, well, now I'm going to separate from the team and it's going to be hard, but look at this big number. And then that number's nowhere near. You are crushed twice because you've, you've <laughs> gone through the heartbreak thing. I'm finally going to, you know, I'm, I'm breaking up with my girlfriend, my family, I'm leaving. But then, you know, because you're going for this big number and then the number is nowhere near as big because you've got all the maths wrong. Mm. You've got to get that right. And then you know if the number is worth doing. And like you said, Pete, you know if the number is good enough for what you want. Like th this is our number that we want personally as a, as a family, as a business owner, whatever it is. These numbers are bigger and, and they're actually valid, right? So they've, they've been validated in some way. I think it's all really important. But same for the buyers. If you're looking to buy a business and you can't get the data in this format, I, I, I'd be wary I'd, I'd really want to see it broken down. You can't just buy a business based on revenue and gross profit. It does not make sense. Um, and I think who else said someone had a question that I saw earlier. There's one from Brian earlier that's an interesting one based on that. Of um, Any appeal in a traditional break-fix to MSPs? So if you're a break-fix business looking to sell, would an MSP be interested in buying a break-fix? Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd be interested in buying a break fix. You know, when I was the, the larger organization, I'd be interested in buying a break fix now. But I've got to look at those clients really, really strongly and think, how can I convert them into recurring revenue clients? Because again, one off is, is fine, but it's worth times one. So the sale value for the seller is not great. The opportunity for me, because I'm essentially buying customers, is, is okay if the price is right, but I'd need to be looking at them and saying, they fit in my sweet spot. There's an opportunity to take them off the platforms that they're on today onto a recurring managed service contract. And therefore I could predict that the value of that would look like this. Maybe the partner just isn't the, the MSP that they've got today just isn't the MSP that's capable of taking them to managed services. And that's why they haven't moved. Or maybe the customers are not the right type yeah. of customers to yeah, make yeah. The MSP and they will only ever pay for break fix. And so you need to delve into that in the due diligence process as, yeah. as a buyer. I'd be wary, but it could just be, I mean, I've, I've seen those MSPs. They just don't know how to do recurring services. They only know how to do break fix hours. They can't get the confidence to say, look, it's 25 pound a user or 50 pound a user a month because they're like, oh. But when you look at it, they're spending so much time and effort servicing those clients that they're not really profitable anyway. And so you've the, the got to do... A lot of diligence on that. Yes. Yeah. The hardest part about buying a break-fix business is getting to the right price agreement between the two of you because typically the owners of a break-fix MSP feel that their value is is the same as what an MSP, revenue-based MSP, has got out there. And I've seen I've seen tons, and it's kind of horrible the amount that I've seen because I feel sorry for the people that have got these wildly, grossly inflated um, expectations mm -hmm. of what they're going to sell their break-fix business for. And I've seen MSPs doing $300,000, $400,000 um, 
break fix, so no managed recurring income whatsoever, expecting $2 million returns on selling their business out there. And that's one of the biggest things I see when you're trying to find a break fix or buy a break fix business is just trying to get to a price point that's not that's the that works for both parties because normally it's wildly different in there because the the buyer of an MSP or a break fix person knows the multiples, but the seller in those instances typically is wildly out of touch. Yeah, very much so. We're already over time. Woof. That was a oh, no, it's, it's, such, it's such a fun topic though. I really like it. There's there's so much to cover in it. Yeah. Um, Madan asks a quick question and we'll finish up with this one. He says, I want to grow my MSP business in the USA. Should I look for a business partner or go for consultants on success fee basis? Um, there's no real easy answer to way to answer that one. Cause you can go either one or the other. Um, you can like, what I will say though, is it is very, 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 very hard to find good people that can source M and A deals in the MSP world, the whole world over. You will typically have to be going and doing a lot of the work yourself unless you're one of those lucky few that does go and find one of those awesome M&A consultants that, that will happily operate on a success for deal um, phase. But they're, they're very few and far in between out there. Typically, you're going to have to, to do something like what I did or um, where you, you're going to go and build your list yourself and create your list yourself. And you'll, you'll, you'll have your team around to help you do that. You might have special part of your team that's to deal with growing and building and nurturing a, a, a list of um, potential acquisition targets. But um, but you, the best the people that I see that are doing it the best are literally doing the work themselves. They're, they're, they're not finding, like those ones that I talked about, that their full-time role is hunting MSP deals. That full-time role is inside an MSP. Like it's it's not someone that they've gone and found a consultant that's out there doing it because as I said, there's not many of them out there. You might be lucky and find one, but they're very, very, very few and far in between out there. And to come back to Pete's point, if you've done what we we all think you should do, which as the owner of an MSP who wants to sell, is make yourself useless and everybody else is running and the business is running, you've got a choice at that stage. Lee makes this point really well. You can then decide to sell or not because actually the business is making money and you're getting paid and your family's happy and your stress levels are down, but you've got a business that runs itself. Awesome. But um, if you do decide you want to sell you are the person who now has the time to go and find that buyer because you've got the business running itself. So you put all of your energy into being the face of this is the business. This is what we're going to sell. I'm going to go and get those lists. I'm going to go to those events. I'm going to prospect me, 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 because who knows that business better than you to sell it to someone and to prospect. But you've got to get yourself out the way. You need, you need the business to run by itself. hundred percent. One of the, one of the deals out here that I saw happen that was in that, kind of space was um an msp that had he'd done two or three deals and he was at, he started off at about the two to three million dollar mark and he did his first kind of million dollar deal and then another million dollar deal and then he did a two million dollar deal but the the owner of the two million like the seller of the two million dollar deal the third one in there became his full-time MA consultant in there so because he was an owner as well he he also he kind of dealt with the whole process at the same level as the the owner of the bigger business did and so he was literally full-time just sourcing deals out there and he did that for years and they did another i think they did something like 12 acquisitions over the next two or three years in there because they had that full-time guy in there and he was obviously i'm sure he was he had some equity in the bigger pie and he was incentivized on the deals really handsomely in there but that was his job was just literally sourcing deals and full-time over three to four years and they did 12 deals one full-time person three to four years 12 deals that that to me i think was a lot of deals to be honest in there because most of those deals were in the the one and a half to two to $10 million ranges. They started doing some big ones once they started getting some traction in there. But, um, but yeah, deals are 
hard to come by, uh, but you've got to put in the hard work. But when you put in the hard work and the, the, the groundwork, you can, you can really add some awesome value to your business uh, in there and really grow in spades. But um, the first couple will be shaky, crazy. The integration process, as you know all too well, Scott, is like a dog's breakfast. I've never, I don't think a, a single merger process has gone well anywhere in the world. Um, they've, always, they've always been a mess, but um, you've kind of got to write off 12 months in, in that process just to get past the mess of trying to integrate something. But on the other side, if you're willing to do that and you start to get some systems in place to do that, you can really have a really great growth strategy through, through M&A out there. Anyway, we're going to wrap up. Time to finish. We're all we're well over. Pete, you're a, you're the wrap up guy. You can yeah. Thank you very much as always. Thanks for joining us, everyone in the chats. Uh, lots of people more on YouTube today, which is good. Good to see some numbers on YouTube and on LinkedIn. Thank you. Um, if you haven't already, if you are on YouTube, make sure you subscribe down in the bottom. Always get the wrong corner in that corner. Um, subscribe or follow or whatever it's called on the podcast platforms. We're on everything's behind. I think it's just called behind the geeks, isn't it, Nigel? Yes. Is that the yeah, it should be. Yeah. Should be on all the stitches and. Spotify's and iTunes and all of that stuff should be up there. Sweet, nice one. But with that said, yeah, we'll um, we're going to talk now about which topic we're going to talk about next week. <laughs> Figure that part out, and um, yeah, see you all same time, same place next week. Thank you, awesome. thank you, everyone, and thank you for the the legendary screen share there, Scott. <laughs> no I love a bit of Excel love. <laughs> you put everyone in their place with their valuations now. Everyone's now sulking. Everyone knows. Oh, where did my $10 million worth just go? <laughs> now we're going to go. Oh, well, that's good. Um, nothing like a kick in the butt with reality to, to put, give us a bit of drive to get back in and start building some real enterprise value in there. So um, yeah, use it as fuel and momentum. All right. I'm going to click the end button. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, everyone, for all your comments and questions and, and suggestions in there. And uh, I will chat to you all same time, same place next week. Bye for now.